Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast. This is the second part of our conversation on AI and Web3. In the first part, we covered the history of AI, some introductory concepts, and in this episode, we talk about AI's overlap with Web3, some potential use cases and challenges of both disciplines. We've, we've talked about the content generation side, explainability. Yeah. yeah, you've got another one to talk about. No, no, yeah, it's kind of linked to it. Like it's, we've talked about content generation and authenticity. Like that, that's mm. a, a really important thing. And you were talking about like micro payments, and like I think that payments in general is going to be a really exciting way in which Web three and uh, AI interact in the future. Like I. Uh, you know, I don't want to excite the crypto bros who are, who are potentially listening, but I I do believe that AI right now is needs a payment rail, right? Mm -hmm. Like, have you you know you try to sign up to a bank account? How hard is that? Like, the KYC involved is very difficult. Like, there's no way we're going to have AI using traditional fiat or you know traditional banking anytime soon. But imagine like the possible use cases if AI could transact, if AI could make mm -hmm. payments on its behalf. Like, it it makes so much sense for AI to have some kind of purchasing power. Like you imagine a world in which you just tell your AI model, okay, I want to create, you know, the next best podcast. And the AI goes out there and it, you know, it, it starts to you know, pay for a StreamYard account. It starts to pay for a Figma account. It starts to generate content. But for all this to happen, it needs to have payment rails, right? And it's not just payment rails. Mm -hmm. These payment rails equal execution rails, right? It needs this to interact on the web and start to procure services to do things. And I think right now we have like a lot of human interaction. You prompt ChatGPT, it gives you something back and then you can go action something. I really believe that we're not too far away from a future where you tell AI to do something like go make a website and it just does everything. It pays everyone. It hires humans, non-humans, other AIs and everything. All the interaction is covered. And I think the only way to get that is through Web3 based payment rails. Yeah, I mean, I can see, I can, again, see a can of worms being opened and some problems with that if you start letting AI do all your subscriptions for you. But I mean, I, I mean, there, there are examples of that, I think, where there are AI tools that will look at your, if you give them access to your, your banking app and things, they'll try and cut out unnecessary subscriptions, things you, you pay for, look to, like budgeting apps type thing. Hmm. And also we mentioned, you know, uh, I think the finance industry is already it's probably way ahead in terms of giving AI money to do things with. They'll give them, they'll 
you know, have. I mean, I actually saw, I saw someone. I can't remember the name now. I'll have a look after the episode. But there is there is a fund manager who was had quite, a, quite a good track record in America, mm-hmm. and he completely moved over to artificial intelligence about a year or two ago. Like he he mm-hmm. completely lets his all his trade execution, all his portfolio management is done purely by computers. So he just gives it the money and lets it go. And that's, you know, that that doesn't need payment rails, as you say. It's an example of like letting AI just loose with money. But I, I agree, like if you wanted to, to let that AI interact in the real world outside of the the internal kind of trading platform that they're using, mm-hmm. then yeah, payment rails you, you'll need. The other thing there will be, because we just talked about micropayments, right? And you're, you're coming at it from the AI being able to pay people. I think mm-hmm. the other way around is also really interesting. So using micropayments to pay for AI services, like we saw what happened with a couple of months ago, Mid Midjourney was one of the big, uh, alongside ChatGPT, Midjourney completely took off. Uh, for those who don't know, Midjourney is, the, is, a, is an AI model, that, a generative AI model that mm-hmm. generates new images based on text prompts. And that's the one you see with all, you know, when, when we talk about those images being created earlier, that was Midjourney. Mm. Now they opened up a free trial for a good couple of months and it blew up. They got so inundated that they had to completely stop the free trial. So I did use it mm-hmm. once just to play with it. And then I, I got locked out and then now they put it. What did you generate, Jack? <laughs> I tried to generate a, a logo for this podcast, but it didn't go that well for me. I'm not, I'm not a prompt engineer yet. But um, the the fact that they had to go and cancel the free subscription, so you know, close off this opportunity for many people and move to a, a subscription model for for however much a month, I, I just thought that was a real missed opportunity for for Web three to be used because you could say, well, if, if instead of charging twenty pounds off the bat to use mm. it each month, let's say, why can't I just pay ten cents for generating one uh, one of these images, and that might have been a much better model to do it with. Yeah, I think we've talked about that in a previous episode, right? It's like, so I pay for ChatGPT because like I said I use it for all aspects of my life and I pay, I think, £20 a month or something like that. And I, yeah. I don't think I actually get that much usage out of it. I have like unlimited prompts and things like that. And it would make you, so you, much you more financial. You said the opposite this episode, Alec. I, I'm sure you can't go back on that now. My mom's birthday is once a year, so it's not like I'm using it all the time. Like, uh, I think, yeah, so you are right. Like, there's some people who are probably using it a thousand times a day. I have no idea who those people are. I wouldn't want to interact with them. But yeah, there's like a there's a bandwidth there, right? And I think it would be a much fairer model if you were paying per prompt because that really is like what the kind of the the burden is on 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 OpenAI to maintain this rather than just a flat subscription for everyone. And you reduce the barrier to entry there as well, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's also, I mean, at this point, it's worth mentioning probably and acknowledging. You know, why, why did you say earlier that AI? Uh, is quite centralized at the minute. It's these big companies. It's because it's so expensive to run. Mm. So you know, ChatGPT had I have I have the figure, um, I have the figure somewhere. It's uh, I think it's something like a trillion parameters in their model, and it requires gigabytes of data to to uh, to train. But yeah, it's um, it's unbelievable the size of these these actual machines. Parameters, my god. Yeah, I I, I did have the figure somewhere i have to I have to double check but it was it was something like a trillion parameters wow. and to actually you know it's expensive there's big um uh gpu costs there's big uh server costs required i mean mm. even just to deal with the demand for the usage let alone because it's taken off so much i mean 
ChatGPT got something like, I think it was like four or five days it took to get to a million users and then had about 100 million within two months. So the demand on the systems just to run what they're doing is yeah, insane. Yeah. And they have to fund it some way. So, you know, if you're doing micropayments per call, that might make a lot more sense. Yeah, I, I completely get it. I'm so for like, I mean, it works both ways, right? Like humans, like I I see in like the metaverse of the future, like we're seeing gaming applications coming out right now, you know, non-player characters in, in big gaming environments that are pretty crappy or they have been pretty crappy up to now. And I think with these large language processes, right, we're going to have really exciting user experiences with these AI generated kind of NPCs. Mm. And I think, you know, we should pay for them, even if it's a micropayment. And even if you just send like an AI into this this world and its entire goal is to just make money. And it says, okay, the way I make money is to go into this world and be the best damn NPC in this world and everyone will tip me and monetize me. That's its goal. It's creating value. Mm -hmm. If people want to give it, you know, micropayments want to give it money for the value that it's creating there, it makes them feel happier, de-stresses them, then it should be able to. And I think these kind of, you know, these payment rounds that we're talking about in Web3 are the perfect way to facilitate that. Mm. you know what you're making me think of a really nice convergence of a lot of what we've talked about recently on the podcast with metaverse and things because mm -mm. i can now i can now envisage being in a game or like in a metaverse environment where you have these npcs and you know you always have like resources in a game you'll have certain items that you pick up like normally they're just coins they're like gold coins and you pick them up mm. and then you can you know do what do whatever but what if you could use those coins to interact, to pay for interacting with the AI, right? And, and mm. get them to do something. Maybe you could get it to generate a new quest for you, you know, and you have to yeah. pay for that. And whatever, the, the cool thing there would be every time you talk to the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the AI, it would, you could prompt it. So you could say, generate me a, a, a quest that takes me to this land and I have to mm. speak to certain people and do certain things and it would generate a fun story around that. So it wouldn't just be like picking from a preset list of things it can do. It could generate on the fly tasks for you and you could pay with the crypto. It's going to be like that world really excites me. Like it gets my, I get really mm. like gaming excited about this. Like I was playing D&D &D the other day, which, you know, Dungeons and Dragons um, with some friends. For, the, and... for those of us with a life. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I was like, I had this kind of rough story that I was going to do. And I was like, I just plugged it into ChatGPT. I was like, make this better. Like, make it more fun. Make it more exciting. Make it darker. And my God, the story it came up with. I know that it's just aggregating lots of stuff out there. But it was the fact that within three seconds, I had this fully immersive story. Like, if I was playing the game and uh, there was an AI in there that was capable of this, yeah, take my money. Like, I, I would love to do that. Mm. And I think everyone wins there. I don't see what, what yeah. Like, it, it just can make perfect sense, right? This culmination of kind of payment rails in games, AI generating content. And I think this is one of the, the big things that we are going to see right now. We think of bots in Web2 as spam. And I think we're going to see, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of potential negatives, like the disinformation, the deep fakes that we've talked about, about how AI could cause problems in the future. But I think there's a lot of benefits that are going to come. And I think Web3 is really going to you know, positively affect how we interact with yeah. AI going forward. And I think in a way, it's absolutely essential for it as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there are, there are, as we've said, there's so many opportunities for AI and we want to realize those as safely and, uh, you know, as ethically as possible. And there's a lot of talk about eth the ethics of AI right now. I mean, remember there was that letter going around that Elon and a bunch of people signed to say, you know, mm. we need to stop the training now because we need to think about the ethics of this because of all the types of things we've, we've talked about. And I, 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 I agree. I really see Web3 being the, the toolkit 
that helps us to use AI productively in the future and minimize bad actors. I mean, talking about bad actors, right? That's a big, that's a big worry. I mean, um, I don't know if you, you saw, but this is a man called Jeffrey Hinton, who mm. is often called the godfather of deep learning. And mm. so he, he, you know, he invented so many of these things. He won the Turing prize uh, a few years ago, I think 2018 because of his contribution to the field. And he was at Google. He was very high up um, mm-hmm. in the AI department or, or something. Yeah, and yeah. He quit. He quit Google recently because he, he was like, I need to, you know, I know I've helped create this stuff. He's got like the Oppenheimer story. Right? <laughs> He's like, I helped create this stuff. And now I need to leave Google so I can speak freely about about the risks to it. And, and he cites things like abuse of the system. And, and uh, you know, if you use them maliciously. Another thing so to what, know. What, what kind of stuff, oh. Jack? Like, what, what does he yeah. mean by abuse of the system? Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a number of ways. So as we've said, one of them, an obvious one would be just using it. It's lower the barrier entry to create spam. That's one example yeah. of abuse. Maybe, um, and uh, and maybe, you know, take things like Cambridge Analytica further, influencing elections, et cetera. Deep but, fakes, all this misinformation and stuff. That's yeah, the kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah. But there are, there are ways that, uh, there are things that AI is uniquely... Um, uniquely susceptible to because of you know we described it's so dependent on the quality of the data you put into it Mm. right it's so dependent on that being how you train the model and i i have to i have to double check but i'm pretty sure i'd be very surprised if it's not the case but i'm pretty sure i read that it is that chat gpt and and similar large language models when you use them they're they're constantly being trained they're constantly improving so it's not like they just they just it's a one shot they just Mm-hmm. build the system they let it loose now every time you use it what you put in it's learning from and yeah i, I i'm 100 sure because you can yeah because it's response, like value right? exactly it's value yeah. up and down like every response is positive and negative yeah. it will improve for everyone based on that yeah so when you click you know was this a good response you're helping train the algorithm and yeah. the dark side of that is people could start poisoning that data set they could start putting in things you know telling the algorithm it's wrong when it's not you know starting mm. to influence the model itself now I don't know how practical all of that is, but the fact that people like Jeffrey Hinton are worried about um, about abusing AI in that way, I think speaks volumes. Got you. I think I, what I thought you were going to go towards then was like training bias. And I think maybe you have kind of alluded to it. It's like, okay, we were talking earlier about the, the voice recognition, right? And how certain dialects in the UK probably weren't recognized because the data set, you know, didn't cover Wales, yeah. the black country and this kind of stuff. And I think, you know, realistically humans have bias as well and i think that the difference is that in ai it's we have the potential to actually read in and provably say what is that bias i think the point is because it's not human we kind of think oh it's completely neutral there's no bias in that but we have to realize like it is trained by humans and there's always going to be bias there and i think that the potential the beauty of this is that we do have auditability into that we can say okay you know, this seems to be biased. Is it biased? Let me look at the data set. Let me read into it using Web3, using the principles of blockchain. Why is it biased? Okay, that's why it's biased. I think that's something we have in humans as well that we need to recognize. Like there is the potential to be biased there, but that's a lot more difficult to kind of define, mm. right? Yeah, and I 100% agree. And that, that, I'm glad you mentioned the bias point. That is that is, that is important because, you know, we go, we go back to this idea that AI doesn't exist in, in isolation. It is created. It is being trained. There are people hand labeling the data set. So they, people will be looking at outputs and, and, you know, not just you when you use it, but people are paid to rate the responses of these things or to, 
uh, to check if certain um, outputs of other models are correct. Um, and, and it's worth noting that, you know, how far do these systems go? They can go a, a much, much further, do much more powerful things. And we live in a global world, to be very incredibly cliche. And as much as we're talking about being ethical with AI, and there's, you know, Europe in particular and America are talking about regulations for AI, I think quite rightly. Another danger and another abuse vector for it is that not everyone will necessarily subscribe to the same view. People, you know, if, if, if a lot of the world self-regulates, there will always be other countries or, or, yeah. or, or subsets of the world that don't and then can, you know, go full, full force and using it for malicious yeah. purposes, which is, I think, one of the things they're worried about. Well, I, I'm so glad you mentioned this because, like we're saying, um, there's who sets the limits right like this is a big mm. problem for chat gpt you were talking about how people are poisoning data sets you know putting in bad prompts yeah like asking for hate speech how do i you know i think what someone told me that they, they were like there was this example on that they did on reddit they're like how do i kill the most amount of people for one dollar or something like that and in a previous version of chat gpt it would answer that question and one of the big developments moving from chat GPT 3.5 to 4 was around the safeguards and making sure that yeah. there's a, a lot more ethics involved. But then the, the problem there is who defines the ethics? Like this mm. is going to become like a commoditized service, like a public service, I, I think, in the future. And who are OpenAI to define what is ethical and what is non-ethical, right? You think about the politics. Like I've seen a lot of people where they're saying there's a massive, a massive bias um, against the Republicans in ChatGPT 3.5. And one of the pushes for four was to kind of equal equalize that bias, right? But it, this is so tricky. Like ethics no. are very subjective. They change from country to country, from person to person. There's no such thing as, you know, universal ethics. Like the UN's Human Rights Act is probably as close as we come, but that's not accepted by every country in the world. Like when these, he's talking about a global, interoperable world, how do we define ethics? How do we safeguard? How do we define standards when there's so many people like we don't agree on them? Like no one agrees on what like the standards should be. So how can OpenAI define it for everyone to use it? Yeah, I, and we're getting into the realm of the philosophical now, right? Um, mm. Web three technologies won't. I don't think they'll solve all these problems. Even you know they won't solve everything. Lots of them they won't even solve to a satisfactory degree potentially. But we just don't know yet. But I still see Web3 as the best toolkit to addressing them, in, at least in the short to medium term, um, and, and providing as much of the infrastructure for yeah, identity, authenticity, um, and, and you know, having evidence of what happened in these systems. Yeah. I, 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 fully, I, I fully believe that. I think I need to look more into um, why Jeffrey Hinton left Google. Like I remember seeing that, that news article come out and being like, oh, God, this is big. I, the only thing that I heard, like I think it was, this was a pub, a pub talk, basically, with one of my friends that's kind of in this space. And I think his he told me his big fear was around the, the war aspect. He was like, a lot of the funding for AI is coming from the military, like the US military. Like if, It's always the way, right? Like They, they push big into robotics. They're big in DARPA, yeah. big into spot, all these kind of AI-enabled robotic systems. And he was like, he, he didn't want to work for things that could potentially be used to kill people or like be used for militaries, no matter what military it is. And I think I, I want to know more detail about what mm. kind of fears he has, right? Well, I recall, I, I do recall what the kind of key ones were. So the first one was around the misinformation piece that mm -hmm. we, we've already talked about, you know, how it will just reduce the barrier to flooding misinformation everywhere. So mm -hmm. we've kind of covered that in detail. 
the other one, which I guess surprisingly we hasn't haven't really come up. I mean, maybe we talked about it with digital marketing and stuff, but the the potential job replacement and and the automation mm. of tasks. Because again, we're saying we're seeing things like ChatGPT simulate human tasks pretty well now, and that's I think that's the biggest consumer worry right now. Yeah, actually, the one that's in everyone's minds is is this going to replace my job? We've seen I think was it. BT, I saw them saying they were laying off something like 20,000 staff in the next few years. Oh, yeah. Replacing it, it with AI. And companies are going to go this way, for sure. This this is a huge topic. Like, So IBM said the same. They were basically said they're going to put a complete freeze on any job um, that could be replaced with AI until they have worked out whether it can be replaced mm. by AI. But I think, like, I, we kind of talked about it before. This happens all the time, right? Whenever there's a new mm. technology that everyone thinks is going to be revolutionary, like the computer, like industrial robotics, all these things, the, one of the first concerns is, okay, how is this going to affect us economically? Is this going to lead to mass unemployment? And it hasn't so far. People adapt. I think one of the fears is that the rate of change means that it's going to, we're going to be playing catch up, which I suppose they tend to do. But I think more and more as we're kind of pushing humanity away from laborious tasks, we can push them more and more towards, you know, tasks that potentially add more value. You know, I guess in my mind, if we think there's a part of money for the NHS, which is the healthcare system in the UK, right? And say you can replace 10% of jobs with AI and save, you know, 99% on costs or something like this, right? And it's the, you know, administrative tasks, maybe. It's like the filter yeah. gates. Like a big problem in the NHS right now is the filter. People come through and they ask to say, like, you know, they don't really actually have any serious ailments. They come through, they ask lots of questions. Like, to have, like, an AI filter initially, initially oh, if you yeah. say whether you need further further kind of um, checks or need further tests or you're just fine and go back, like, that could save a lot of cost. But like I was saying before, there's a pot of money. If you could save some money by removing some of these jobs and then push more money Money to other jobs like more nurses more like the kind of the jobs that say maybe create more value in that sense like is that not a benefit overall mm. yeah i i agree and i i i see a lot of the talk about mass unemployment now from ai as similar to the gary kasparov moment about the death of chess mm -hmm. you know it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't bear truth in reality and there's a very heartening statistic i don't know the number exactly but it's like it's something like more than 50% of the jobs we have now didn't exist 10, 20 years ago, whatever the figure is. But it reflects the fact that employment changes over time. You know, the jobs now are very, very different to 100 years ago. So just reducing some jobs and, uh, you know, minimizing certain types of labor is is going to be replaced with other jobs. And, and, and it's interesting because I think what's different now is it's, it's changing a lot of... Um, yeah desk-based work that is written mm -hmm. and the uk has you know you know tons of this. this is a huge part of our employment the information uh knowledge yeah, yeah. workers sorry knowledge work it's really it's really having a big impact on that and i think that's partly why people are making such a fuss about it because you know the, the industrial revolution replaced a whole bunch of jobs we don't have people manually uh you know doing every part of the of, of the car manufacturing anymore yeah, and yeah. We we're doing just fine I think the same is happening, but people, it's 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 becoming, it's more in people's minds because it's affecting a different type of people now. It's in different people in different types of jobs, um, which is interesting. But yeah, I, I don't I don't see it as, as really changing. I don't think it's going to make everyone unemployed in the next in the near future. It is very interesting. Like I follow a lot of American politics. I remember seeing this Republican candidate basically say, yeah, AI is going to change the world. 
but like his fan base was effectively like working class people. And he was like, but it won't change the world. We'll always need, you know, farmers. We'll always need laborers. We'll always need welders, construction workers. AI will never affect those jobs. So you're safe and I'll make sure you're safe and you're secure. And you're completely right. It's like a dynamic mm. shift. This is one of the first times that like a, maybe a, a technological advancement has really come for, you know, desk-based jobs and kind of yeah. people that would think of themselves like middle class, upper middle class and all these things. But yeah, again, I think it's just that the emphasis is going to change. Like I see stats where it's like, you know, we're going to lose 150,000 jobs. And then like the subtext somewhere is like, but it's going to create 150,000 jobs elsewhere, right? I think we're just going to see more productivity overall. I think like a big example of this is coding. Like, oh my God, the way ChatGPT has advanced like software development and coding is crazy. Like one of the guys that um, I'm really good friends with, software developer, he's like the... I can do a task now that would take me a month in basically a day by prompting ChatGPT. And it's not like his work's going to gonna away. He's just way more productive. And I think those kind yeah. of like areas have a lot to gain from this. Exactly. Yeah, that's the right word. It's, in, it's, in, it's increasing productivity, essentially. I mean, what it can do to automate, uh, you know, coding and stuff like people, again, an, a different sector that's being... Uh, targeted by this advancement in AI would be people who are just experts in a in a, in a coding language potentially, um, uh, who can who would just write code and don't necessarily mm. de define and design systems, because you can ask you know uh, you can ask one of these machines to say okay write me the code for a website and yeah right now you're not going to trust ChatGPT to write all your HTML <laughs> and CSS for your website, but I definitely think in the future it will get good enough to do that and um yeah yeah i I, th I think that's just another interesting dimension to the whole thing is that is all these different types of jobs that are under threat and i think it's going to lower the barrier to entry like imagine if you're a startup and you're like okay i need to hire five software developers to do this yeah. thing like create a website with all this back end stuff that's going on and that's going to cost me like 250 grand and then all of a sudden chat GPT comes out it's like 20 pound subscription you can do it and you're like Oh my God, finally, my dream's been realized. I can create a yeah. website, make a startup. And I, I, I get it. I get the fear. And I think it's kind of the fear of the unknown. Is my job at risk? What mm. does my life look like? But I think as with almost everything so far, like this is the best time to be alive ever, period. And that's because of technological advancement, right? And I mm. think there's always a fear with the unknown, but humanity so far, based on you know the million or well 20,000 years of human civilization or whatever, it's gotten better and I do think it will get better. And I think, yeah, society is definitely going to change and be hugely impacted. Like this is going to be, AI is going to be the, one of the most hugely impacting things since fire potentially, but I'm excited from it overall. I yeah. realize there's going to be a lot of problems in the same way. Fire can burn a house, it can cook food, but I think overall it will be a massive net positive for humanity. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree. Um, I, had, I had a point that I was thinking about and it's just, uh, I've just lost it. It will come back to me. Um, it, is it more of the Jeffrey oh, problems? No, what, what I was going to say, actually, I've just remembered is what I was going to say was what another way we could describe all of this, like increasing productivity is uh, increasing efficiency. It's making mm. it more efficient to do things, which is in, an incredibly Web3 idea, as we've discussed. You know, it's lowering the barrier to entry is just increasing the efficiency with which you can achieve task X, Y, Z. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's going to make it a lot easier to do certain things, and there'll be big, big winners from that. You know, there'll be there'll be companies that there are companies being built just just to solely leverage AI. I mean, that word leverage mm -hmm. in itself is 
is why everyone likes software and software as a service. You get high leverage from it. You build something once, you can deploy it many, many times. AI yeah. gives you leverage to your your, your brain. You know, the people who are better at using AI will do the best from it. I mean, I've seen, I don't know if you've seen this, I'm sure you have, but as soon as ChatGPT came out and, and GPT-4, there is a whole new terminology around prompt engineering as a job. And I've seen, yeah. I've seen, I've seen job adverts for hundreds of thousands of pounds for prompt engineers, people who are the best at wrangling the best it's responses crazy. out of the AI. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, I, it is a skill, and I think I saw someone say that it's like it's the same skill as human interaction. In the same way that a salesperson will be a wordsmith, they'll know exactly what words to use to make people feel more comfortable in making the sale. Like, it's just like that. Like, it's about how do you use yeah. the right words to get the most out of ChatGPT. Yeah. It's quite an interesting paradigm shift, right? But I love this idea of, like, a prompt wordsmith. It's so interesting that people yeah. are pushing this as a career choice now. ChatGPT is like uh, Aladdin's cave, and you've got to whisper the right words into it to get the gold, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. That is the nerdiest reference um, we've had so far. And I was talking about D&D earlier as well. Yeah, well, you know. Um, One of the problems with this, like, you're talking about efficiency, and I find it super exciting uh, but I also, is there a part of me that thinks, okay, is this going to turn dystopian? You know, have you seen the film Wally, where humanity is completely kind of supported by robotics and AI, and we yeah. no longer have to engage? Is that a humanity of the future? And that's a potential, right? Like, that's scary. As we kind of offset more and more of our daily tasks and, and thought processes, does it mean we're freed up to do more of what humanity wants to do, which is like being creative, artistic, all these kind of things? Or do we actually need to work? Do we actually get pleasure from, you know, the grinding graft of, you know, the work that we're doing now? And this is, I think there's, you know, there's two separate camps. I think maybe more the technologist people think it's going to be a utopia. And then more people, mm. there's some people that think it might be a dystopia where it's, a, you know, we're, we're offsetting too much. Yeah, I've, I've seen both, uh, definitely. I mean, people like, uh, I think Naval Ravikant, who is, mm. is kind of on the money on a lot of things, he, he definitely sees it going in that creative utopia. But the only jobs left will be, uh, the creative pursuits, you know, which actually goes against what we were saying about the risks to creative people. Actually, mm. when everything else is automated, they'll just be production of new um, inspiration, works of inspiration. Yeah. So things from actual human thought. And then the other people who are who are more worried. But um, yeah, I, I don't know which way it's going to go because that brings up a whole other conversation, which I don't think we'll have today about things like universal <laughs> basic income, right? Because if there's only creative work to do, then you will need to subsist in some way. Um but your point actually takes me very nicely and neatly onto the third and final one of Jeffrey Hinton's big concerns, which is about um, AGI or AGI, uh, mm. the artificial general intelligence, the big kind of Ooh. specter that some people are worried about. This is this is the Skynet, you know. This is the, the singularity, how, right? <laughs> the singularity. So how far does how far do they go? You know, when it's not just a happy, helpful chatbot, and when it's when do the machines take over? Um, and, you know, I, I don't feel qualified to have a, a view on this. You know, I feel like um, I feel like it seems implausible. But then so did ChatGPT until recently, you know, it, I, like so I've had a lot of maybe pub conversations, some sober, some not so sober. And I feel like I've talked about this a lot. Like it's this is the first time in, you know, maybe a million years at which human brain power may not be the most intelligent driving force in the world. Right. There is the possibility that this AGI could come out that is way beyond our comprehension that we can't keep up with. And that bit kind of scares me. Is it possible? That is a topic that is massively up for debate. Like, I don't 
I'm one someone who subscribe, and this is getting very philosophical. I'm someone to subs- that does not subscribe to the fact that human humans are uh, particularly special. That we have this inconceiv- incomprehensible soul thing that makes us different, right? I believe that you could track our evolution from like uh, a single-celled organism, which could very easily, I think, be mapped by an AI to you know something as complicated as an ant, which I think could be mapped by AI to something as complicated as a dog like which could probably be tracked by AI. Why is there something that's all of a sudden super special? It's just that we're slightly more complicated, slightly more difficult to map. And I do subscribe to the fact that AI does have the potential to, you know, evolve to the singularity. And that's you're scary. It is scary, I think, overall. Yeah, I mean, I think we're going to have to rein it in from the philosophical in just a moment. But I, I actually, I think I broadly agree with you there. Um when you start thinking about things like free will, you know, that's what we're talking mm. about. When we're talking about AGI, like can something have free will? And th- there's a kind of a growing movement around whether or not free will exists for humans. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people who will describe humans as wet robots now. Um, and there's, you know, there's, the science kind of supports that, that interpretation, even if like our experience in uh, per- perception in terms of our own perception might um might feel different a lot of the science actually supports that like i mean i won't repeat everything you can go and listen to sam harris he'll tell you all about it but i'm i'm, I'm a, i think we're wading too far into other topics now. so why don't Definitely. we why don't super we just... interesting <laughs> yeah yeah i mean we should maybe we should just become sam harris's podcast one day so, yeah. <laughs> um not that we would have any chance of that but <laughs> let's just maybe close off this discussion by getting back to like the concrete use cases right we have we've littered them throughout but maybe why don't we just talk a bit, uh, for a bit about our favorite ones like what what are you most excited about at the minute favorite ones um i think the most tangible one for me is around like training ai basically and we talk when we talk about data ownership how we train ai and what that means for privacy and i think to put it into like really tangible terms like imagine healthcare like Everyone wants the best healthcare available, right? But when you look at the the statistics around, you know, when people get polled about, are you willing to give up your, you know, your personal private healthcare data to improve, say, the standards of health checks? So a good example would be around, you know, cancer treatment. Okay, so I talked earlier about how we're using AI already to scan, to basically analyze scans to see, okay, does this person have a tumor? Do they have cancer, or are they fine? Is it benign, right? But People don't what if they had the option, most people in that instance wouldn't want to give up their personal information along with the scan, even if it benefits the process overall. So yeah. I think we're going to see a process where we can start to use some of the technologies we've been talking about before, where users own their data, they own their scan, right? It's authenticated, signed off by a doctor, say, yeah, this is a real scan to make sure that you know the data set that we're actually using isn't poisoned or toxic or bad, as you were talking about earlier. And they can disclose the details of the scan with the authentication without the personal identifying information in that, okay? So when we start to think about this on like a, a wide scale, then the AI has access to a lot of data, a lot of, okay, this scan is good, this scan is bad, that kind of data, right? The data it actually cares about and none of the personal identifying information. And quite importantly, it's been authenticated and signed off by a trusted doctor. So it knows the data is good overall, right? And then that allows us to create like a, a very, you know, potentially successful AI model so we can start to actually get 
you know, positive and negative outcomes from these scans in future. And then when it comes to the actual testing, you know, I, this is my scan that I've now got. All I have to reveal to that AI model is my scan, and it will tell me the probability that this is good or bad. I don't need to reveal that personal identifying information. And I think in terms of training and outcomes, I think this kind of like this kind of process we're describing here is going to be super beneficial. It's going to make alleviate a lot of problems with you know the authenticity of data going into AI models. It's going to help feed into a lot of the trust that is a big issue with how AI is done right now, and it's going to lead to a lot of better outcomes overall. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I can beat healthcare, to be honest. I have to <laughs> completely agree with you, right? I, I, I'm fully on board with that, I think, is where it can have the most positive impact and mm. benefit for society, um, especially with this move to, I think, preventative healthcare is like, yeah. is the really, that's the key, you know? Um, I mean, especially with, the people look, yeah. I, saying, I think people are quite scared of the idea of big data, especially with preventative healthcare, right? Like you don't want to be monitored. Your you don't want your data monitored all the time, even if it means you're going to have a healthier outcome over your life. If it means that, you know, big corporations have information about, you know, when you go into the toilet and these kind of things. It's interesting. I actually went to a conference like not too long ago where there was this guy who basically created a device where it monitors all of your urine stool samples constantly. And he was like, we can detect, you know, how healthy someone is throughout their life. And the preventative outcomes are incredible. It was like, people mm. don't want to sign up to it because the idea of date, like, you know, companies connecting that kind of data is super scary. But I think we could see a paradigm shift that comes in as we say, okay, no personal identifying information will be revealed. It's purely about, you know, the actual, you know, biomedical stuff that's going in for the outcomes. And I think this could lead to like very successful solutions. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think that there are also just there's such a, a diverse range of ways you can use AI in healthcare. You know, mm -hmm. everything from like the triage process, as you said. I mean, we're in, we're from the UK. The the NHS is on its knees. It's so understaffed. Mm -hmm. It's not a case of replacing jobs, to be honest. At the minute in the NHS, it's literally a case of filling a gap in in being able to help people and prevent. Yeah. You know you know, help people work out if they need to come to the hospital or, or go to the doctors or what, you know, what, what they need to do without having to, to, to use these precious, um, preciously scarce human resources that we have and are losing the yeah. NHS. And like then call centers do this already, right? And like, yeah. I mean, everyone is infuriated with how bad call centers are. But if like, why aren't healthcare services using it? It's obviously effective, like it works. And if you're saying I can save X amount and like, you know, get the right people to the right places by using the system, there's obviously a benefit there. Yeah, 100%. And then you've got the whole, you know, things to do with training um, medical trials and, and, and training data or training models with, with data for for medical trials i mean what we saw with covid and how fast we had to respond to that and understand the virus um this this field of protein folding has been around for years yeah. right and, and using machine learning and it's just being used even 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 more every day to solve those kind of problems to detect you know cancer and things and i think you know where, where web3 and ai can intersect really nicely is in that I think, as you said, like permissioning the data to be used in medical trials, because if people know it's being used for a certain thing and know they can use it, they can give that data privately. Mm. Um, people do do that right now, but it's not on the scale that you'd need. So, mm -hmm. you know, you think about your your heart rate monitor, your, your Apple Watch or something. 
that's taking constant readings throughout the day that you're not necessarily sharing or you're not incentivized to share. You can share it, but you're not necessarily, it's not going to the right places. Whereas Web3 and AI together will basically provide the incentive model to say, oh no, I, I will happily pay, I mean, be paid to, to give that data away. It'll also help with things like, you know, then in, insurance um, insurance yeah. providers will then lower premiums for uh, if, if you provide data and things like that. So I think, yeah, there are just so many applications in healthcare. And I think that what you just said reminds me of that. Um, there was that kind of flu outbreak app that Google worked on, right? Whereas like they were trying to work out where there was flu outbreaks based on people Googling symptoms. And they were yeah. like, the problem with that is the bad data. They were like, there's a flu outbreak in every city, basically every 10 minutes, because there's constantly people that are saying, oh, am I ill? Am I ill? So like, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. That's come back up, but it's all about the quality of the data, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and to kind of, even go back to the Apple Watch thing, right? I think the the systems on there, which are all AI supported now, um, things like fall detection. So that was when I first saw Apple Watch. And I think it's pivoted to a health device from it previously mm. being like, a, oh, this is a fun thing you can you know, read your messages on and take calls on. There was a moment where it really became like, oh, this is a proper health device when they integrated mm. the... Um, fall detection so if if you fall over and you and it'll give you a prompt to say are you okay and if you're not okay then it'll it'll call um, emergency services for you and i was like wow that's 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 huge like that's a that's something that everyone in the world can use especially you know older people who might fall in the home and not you know not um, not have anyone around Be, be that solves such a big problem for people and i know it's not the kind of ai like the the chat gbt stuff that we've been talking but um it's it's still going to be things that are supported by the underlying Web three technologies in the future. I'm sure about you know, with blockchain how it's being used, because fundamentally I think you can you can expand the plate the space of possibility of possibilities like the different places mm-hmm. you're using the AI if you're using it with these balances and checks in place. So as soon as you yeah, implement yeah. you know the blockchain auditing and things and and and, and, the, and the evidence trail, then you can expand what you're using it for and solve you know different problems with it. Yeah, that's nice. That's like a, a super nice note to end uh, the use cases on. So like, what do you think the future of AI looks like with the, with the Web3 aspect in mind? Like, We've talked about a lot of things. Like, What are the yeah. key points for you? And what are the things that excite you most, do you think? You know, I think, I think I've probably mentioned most. I mean, in AI, whenever you talk about it, you're out of date within 10 minutes. So <laughs> who knows? By the time this comes out, maybe the future would have been realized. But... <laughs> I, I think I'm most excited by the economic and the markets that it can open up. So, you know, we talked mm-hmm. about we talked about how it might replace certain jobs. And I think Web3 is actually going to open up. That's going to be the real key that opens up many, many new jobs that we don't know about. You know, the micropayment mm-hmm. economy, all these new types of job, types of work, types of business model that are facilitated by Web3, by micropayments. I think that is going to be really interesting because it's going to create all these new types of jobs that will maybe be in use with AI. You might you might have micropayments to be labeling data and interacting with the AI. That could be a job, right, to, to, to help mm-hmm. improve AI. I don't think that's the most exciting job. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I just think the combination of AI uh, improving efficiency in existing kind of arcane jobs that don't that can mm. be automated and then web3 replacing those with new new markets that opened up by 
by what you can do yeah. by um by tokenization by data data sharing i think yeah, that's yeah. the it's going to be exciting to see them kind of uh pass the baton from one another so to speak but yeah, yeah. i know it's not very so specific Right, but so general. The thing that you're most excited about is efficiency improvements. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's really okay. That is really boring. <laughs> no, I'm, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm really excited for Netflix to get a better recommender algorithm. <laughs> it recommends me rubbish. Um, so you know, if uh, that, I mean that, that could be that could be a, a really good crossover as well. So if Netflix started at the minute, they have a, a recommender algorithm, which is an example of AI. It's, uh, it's some, some tooling and AI is used to do that. Yeah. And they try and you know give you recommendations based on what you've watched before. But there are all sorts of other things you could do with Web3. You could do recommendations that are weighted by how much you were willing to pay, how much you're willing to pay per micropayment for, you know, mm. how much you... Um, they might be able to do it using other data sets that you permission and share from a different source. So at the minute, they have to do recommendations purely based on what you do in the app but you might yeah. be able to connect your activity on IMDb or um, on a different streaming because there are like 20 different streaming providers now, right? So they don't know mm. about each other. They don't share data necessarily. But if you could then share your data set with them all and say, okay, I'm going to tell you all what I'm watching and then you can recommend me better stuff, that would be quite, yeah. quite good. <laughs> so you could spend you know, more time at home watching Netflix and other streaming platforms. Less time scrolling through really bad recommendations. <laughs> efficiency improvements always efficiency <laughs> so i think there's two for me one with my like nerdy gamer hat on one is the the ai content generation like the idea of having in these kind of metaverse gaming worlds little ai bots that like you said can like spin out incredible stories can interact real time can provide like really cool feedback and an exciting kind of dialogue and exciting kind of actions and all this kind of stuff that stuff i, I find really exciting as a gamer the other stuff is more like the business aspect, the payment rails. When we start to get AIs that can, you know, commerce and exchange and buy things and like subscribe. And you can just imagine a world where you just go to an AI and you say, make this business for me, set it up for me, or, you know, make this product for me. And it just goes out there, it actions, it sends, you know, the funds yeah. wherever it needs to go. And you just get these like incredible projects, these multifaceted projects, multifaceted projects, sorry, that are just like set up by this AI. I think that is just an incredible idea. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a super talented developer who basically implemented this exact idea, right? And he combined, um, he can basically, yeah, he, he built an app that you can speak to Siri on and you can say, hey, Siri, make me a... I've just said, hey, Siri. So everyone listening on their speakers will now have... Uh, I'm just, I've just been paused <laughs> by Siri. <laughs> they'll click say... Bait, um, right? Yeah, yeah, click right. So they'll say, hey, Siri, can you make me uh, a, a new uh, website for this type of product? Da, da, da. It should have a login. It should have a database to manage users, etc. And then in the background, it gets all these other generative models to build to write the code deploy it automatically mm. do all the all the all the ci cd um it's insane like that's already yeah. exists you can just speak and it and it becomes so yeah i think that's definitely exciting but you know it's it's old news as well alex so <laughs> it's exciting so like there's a utopian future and a potentially dystopian future but i think overall i see a utopian future and i think it seems like you do too and i think we're excited about the potential of AI and also the potential of Web3 to support AI going forward. And I think the overlap for me is one of the most exciting things.
yeah for sure so yeah that's that's a good place to end we've uh we've covered everything from ai and web3 to the existence of free will in one episode and now it's time to sit in a dark corner and cry <laughs> thank you, thank you for listening, for listening. <laughs>